0: Hi, everyone, and welcome again to another one of my Gaudiom at Spez22.com Podbean podcast and YouTube videos. You can catch the Podbean podcast on Apple and Spotify. Now I sound like Joe Rogan. You can get it on Apple and Spotify. Uh, And I'm bald like Joe Rogan. Anyway, we have, I I, I told these two guys, these two yokels that I have on today, hey, I'm getting the band back together uh, because I so much enjoyed our first conversation on uh, John Courtney Murray and the Catholic Worker Movement and so on. And we're going to this is part two, part two. And I'm speaking of none other than the uh, Michael Baxter teaches at uh, Regis University in uh, where is that Denver? Right, Denver. All right? And uh, I've, I've, for some reason, I had a, a temporary panic attack. there think, Oh, you know, wait a minute. No, it's not in Denver. It's outside of Denver. No, it's in Denver. And uh, then we have Benjamin Peters, who's at St. Joseph's University College. It, oh, there's my dog barking. St. Joseph's in, uh, in Connecticut, Connecticut. And uh, they're both uh, professors of religious studies, theology, that kind of thing. Uh, and uh, we're going to launch right into this. Sorry for the very unprofessional, slipshod nature of those introductions uh but uh i I didn't really take a whole lot of time to download massive biographies of both of you because i'm really both and both of these guys if you listen to the last podcast are deeply involved in the catholic worker movement in fact i did a, a standalone interview with benjamin peters about his book called to be saints right there that's i don't know if i showed this before dorothy day's retreat notebooks and so forth it's about the hugo retreats and many other things uh, uh, that Dorothy Day was about in terms of her spirituality. Anyway, so we want to continue our discussion today. I wanted to get back to these guys because we really spent a lot of time last time talking about Merca and John Courtney Murray and and liberalism and so on. And I wanted to to really do a deep dumpster dive and 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 dig down into it a little bit further. To that end, I I, I wanted to talk a little bit about some issues near and dear to the heart and soul of the Catholic worker movement. We're going to talk about the worker movement in a second uh, about, you know, its status and so on. But one of the things that we didn't discuss in the last episode that I think really needs to discuss is, is that Dorothy Day and Peter Maurin and the early lights of the Catholic worker movement were deeply, deeply, deeply critical of capitalism. However you want to define capitalism uh, in many ways, one could simply say concretely that they were critical of whatever you want to call the economic system that currently governs America and 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 Europe and most of the world, whatever label you want to put on that. And it's convenient to call it capitalism. They were critical of that. So I'm going to turn it over to my two guests. I'm going to start with uh, Mike Baxter and then go up to Ben. Uh, Mike, what? what do you make of Dorothy's critique of capitalism? And do you think that it is still pertinent today?
1: Um, I do think it's pertinent today. And I guess the way I look at her critique of capitalism was that she got a lot of what she ended up criticizing about capitalism from her pre-conversion days in um, in the 19-teens and 20s, uh, when she was part of the old left. Uh And she doesn't hide this at all in uh, The Long Loneliness. She's very clear about her own roots in um, old left circles. Um, She, at one point, lists all the different branches of uh, left wing. um, In one way or another, Marxist thought, you know, the kind of traditional Marxists who say, just wait for the unfolding of the dialectic and the contradictions of capitalism the system will collapse in on itself or the direct actionists who said no we have to take action intervene in this social order and create a new community now that's what she favored that was where the wobblies and then the socialists the ones who wanted to you know win over the state And uh, she was wary of that. She interviewed Trotsky back in 1917, not long uh, before Trotsky made his way back to Russia and the revolution. And uh, one key point in The Long Loneliness, she um, quotes Trotsky something to the effect of uh, those who try to win the state get won by the state. So that the socialist agenda of a lot of um people on the old left was something that she thought was a trap anyway she gets into all this um in the long loneliness and lets it be known yes. that she is part of the old left and to be writing this in 1952 at the height of the Cold War the McCarthy years was a courageous and provocative thing to do so she felt that, The economic system is best understood uh, as those who the haves and the have nots. The people who own the uh, means of production control those means of production, use the means of production to get what profit they can, and will use workers to the extent that it satisfies those ends. Um, And that was certainly true, you know, at the In the early 20th century and you know and she even cites books like you know the classic upton sinclair's the jungle a very powerful book and uh and she read it when she was young and um she read dickens and you know dickens is full of stories about people who are the have-nots the forgotten ones and she just thought that this economy in the united states operates like that um and the question i suppose would be does it still operate like that and the answer i suppose i would give is yes and the best way to find out how it operates is to go to talk to those who are workers Um, you know one time i was in california in santa cruz or south of santa cruz watkinsville and, watsonville uh, pardon watsonville yeah watsonville
0: where they grow all the strawberries yes strawberries. i know it well
1: yeah it's an a driscoll the company and and you drive through there and there's just hundreds of people picking strawberries yeah what are they getting paid i go up the street and i get their strawberries what do they what what are they getting paid you know and um, what are their working conditions and so on these are still relevant questions when I was uh, working, I, I, after leaving Notre Dame in 2011, I ended up teaching at DePaul for a few years. And um, I got involved with the, uh, with the union. I didn't get involved. I brought my students down to meet people in the union. The union was called Unite Here. And there's some Notre Dame students who were involved in that union uh, in Indianapolis and uh, elsewhere. And uh, so they put me in touch with Unite Here in Chicago. And uh, I brought my students down to a strike. They were striking the uh, Hyatt um, in the Magnificent Mile. And it was moving to hear those stories of people who came, you know, who are working the hotels.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Who are, uh, you know, whose assignment is to, you know, do 12 rooms a day. And then arbitrarily, or not arbitrarily, not indifferently, but in order to get more efficiency out of these workers, they would say now you have fourteen rooms a day to do, and they wouldn't raise the pay and so on. This is happening all over still, and we just have to, I think, listen for the stories and the experiences of workers. And I think Dorothy was wonderful about that. She she was a you know she described herself first and foremost as a journalist.
0: Yes, absolutely.
1: Um, and uh, she was committed to reporting on what was going on. Among workers, you know, Peter Morgan wasn't so thrilled about that. His up phrase, you know, his famous phrase strikes don't strike me. And so That's on. right. Dorothy was very clear about that. And she was um, uh, until the end of her life, uh, the, the UFW was launching a gigantic strike and in, um, uh, in the 70s and a boycott of um, uh, some of the, you know, uh, uh, growers in California and who were who were Giving the short end of the stick, to put it mildly, mildly to um, farm workers, Cesar Chavez and the UFW were organizing. She was all for it, yeah. and I feel like uh, you know, in some ways, I think it's true. One criticism or one observation of the of the Catholic worker these days is that it's not quite as attentive, not not entirely, not all to not all across the board. But it's not as attentive to the issues of workers. It's harder, I think, nowadays to track the issues of workers. Unions have lost the power that they have had um, before the 1980s when Ronald Reagan started busting unions. And uh, uh, nevertheless, uh, it's important for us to recapture that and there learn how capitalism works. Olga, the woman who empties the baskets in my office what does she get paid and how does that compare to the more than two hundred thousand dollars a year that the high administrators at regis university in denver get paid oh, now
0: wow you
1: know these are these are real questions because i venture to say that olga works as hard as as i do i get paid a good bit more than her, but I get paid a fraction of what other people get paid. Reads so you know these things are are important. Yeah, and um it's all over. It's all over once you start oh, looking.
0: I have a million, I have a million, million, million questions I want to ask you about that. But I want to turn it over to Ben first to see if he wants to piggyback on those comments, add any of his own, or even if he wants to ask some questions raise some points
2: oh i i, I was thinking you know well while, while yeah the 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 unions maybe aren't what things were back in the 30s or the 40s there 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 is a kind of a uh resurgence now you know in union activities yeah. whether it's at places like starbucks or or amazon and you know and 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 these are very i mean my my students know people who work in the amazon warehouse you know stone's throw from campus and they i i, I always think when, when, when i think of the the stories you hear about kind of what, what an Amazon warehouse worker is like and kind of the dehumanizing activities that, it, that like the robots are in charge. I think of Peter Morin's cr- cr- critique of kind of wage capitalism as this dehumanizing. And, and that's what I was gonna add on to, to what Mike was saying about Dorothy, that I think not only did Dorothy kind of bring a, 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 a sensibility from the old left and a, and a critique of the old left, but I, I think what she really appreciated when she met peter and kind of that magic that happens when she meets peter is because i think you know especially when you read the the early her earlier accounts in 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 the long loneliness after she becomes catholic and she's saying where are all the clerics in these marches and and you know and, and she's still going yeah. and, and covering all the hunger strikes and hunger marches and she she thinks well now that i'm a catholic i i can't be with these folks because they're communists and and then she meets peter and at least in her telling it's like he opens this world, right? Like his famous line, like the the hidden dynamite of the church, that there's these, these social encyclicals and 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 also offer a very vivid critique of capitalism. So I so, so I think it's probably important to remember that where when when Dorothy is is making these criticisms, especially once she once the Catholic work gets off the ground, that 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 she's really, and I think, you know, there's the story of why they call it the Catholic worker and not the Catholic radical or the Catholic. Right. Right. And, and she's she wants to answer that kind of Marxist critique that that Catholics have nothing to say about this. And I think I I, I I think a big part of those early, especially those early years of the Catholic worker was really to show that that the Catholic Church does offer not only a, a, a strong critique of, cap, of capitalism and, and sort of what Peter Morin calls wage slavery, but also Offers a, then a positive alternative of what could an economic system that wasn't a kind of a totalitarian uh, communism on, on 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 the one hand, but also wasn't kind of this this um, individualism and and competition within capitalism on the other hand. And that's where things like di- distributism and 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 kind of a, a, a union centered or community centered notion of of um, of, of of economics come in and 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 sometimes that gets a little romanticized you know and Peter was always about there's there's no unemployment on the land and a back to the land movement but but I I think there you know it it's probably important to remember that there was that kind of twofold that there was not only a kind of critique of capitalism but then a sort of a positive view of you know building a society where it's easier for people to be good and and how and really seeing that that's fundamentally, that's the problem with capitalism. Mean, that's, that's anyways, how I try to get my students to kind of look, look at it. Like, does this, does this system make it easier for you to help other people out? Or does it make you feel like you're in competition? If you pay more at Walmart, so the workers make more, that means you're going to have to pay more. And there's always this sense of competition as opposed yeah. to more of a sense of cooperation. And, and so, um, so I think having those, keeping those two branches of this of this criticism, um, in in mind is is important as well.
0: You Michael, know,
1: a couple, of, you know, a couple of examples because um, I I do suffer from the romanticism that Ben points out, but but um, I I have had ideas and and partial visions, imaginations of of how things should be done differently. And and that was mentioned- going to be
0: my next question. Oh. But before you get into that, before you get into that, I do want to ask one question before we move on to how can we do things differently? Uh, I do agree with your assessment of capitalism in the modern world as an as economic system of haves and have nots. However, I have also read statistics and I'm, I'm not saying agree with this. I'm just being devil's advocate that says that actually, Uh, Poverty has decreased worldwide and modern economic systems, the global corporate capitalist system has, in fact, generated the greatest amount of material well-being for the average citizen that the world has ever seen. Um, And I, quite frankly, I'm not an economist. I'm a dilettante in these matters. Uh, and I don't know what to make of those kinds of observations, those kinds of statements. So before we move on to what can we do that we better, let's at least let's at least plumb the depths just a bit of the of the criticisms of the position that all three of us hold, that there's a problem with capitalism. So maybe, Michael, you could address that.
1: Yeah, I, I get two responses that one. Uh, and both of these are, are taken from my reading and studying of things um, by Alistair McIntyre, But the f- the first response uh that I want I want to say to that is that it's true in a certain sense that poverty has been alleviated in a lot of parts of the world and i suppose you could say it's due to capitalism and and critics of capitalism have to admit it's good for people not to go hungry it's yeah. good that some of these things have been alleviated some of these sufferings but at the same time it's also important to know that a lot of suffering has not been alleviated and that people still starve in the world today every minute that we speak um and that uh workers are still inhibited from flourishing, to use both a Marxist and Aristotelian Aristotelian term, uh, are still prohibited from flourishing because of the way the market operates. At one point or another, workers will be seen as mere instruments for capital, and they'll get, for example, laid off and so on. And uh, look at all the layoffs that are going on you know, in all sorts of uh, industries now and in the future with artificial intelligence, people are just not going to survive. And the logic of capitalism says we're going to do what works to advance the profits. And um, uh, and that's what's going to be the final. Arbiter, the bottom line and so yeah. on. So in one sense, that's that's a key thing to remember, even though we concede uh, the point that you make and people like Michael Novak used to make ad nauseum. Um, the other thing is that capitalism not only oppresses workers by depriving them of their full humanity, a work life that works and makes sense, but also it tears apart ways of life. This, uh, This this, um, argument over um, standard of living has increased under capitalism was countered by the great historian who McIntyre was very involved in by the name of E.P. Thompson, who wrote the classic book, The Making of the English Working Class. And what he points out throughout the book and against apologists of capitalism from the West what he points out is that whole ways of life were destroyed with the industrial revolution. Um, Clothes were made more efficiently, but whole ways of production and um, uh, whole ways of, of living close to the land, in villages, in small businesses, in cooperative arrangements where the market was used to sell excess goods beyond what people could sell and people needed locally. But nevertheless, markets didn't ravage whole ways of life. And um, it's no coincidence that the commons, lands, and so on and so forth were seized uh, by the government, you know, in England in the early 19th century, and so on and so forth. So that well, need- Eugene
0: McCarraher makes that great point yeah. in his book, The Enchantments of Manman.
1: Yes. What we need to look at is not just standards of living, but ways of life. And I think this is taps into what both Dorothy and even more so Peter um, were trying to recover or, as Peter put it, reconstruct, you know, like we want to construct communities and sort of res retrieve or restore a more localist understanding yeah. of yeah i i imagine this is what you're trying to do over there in your farm and that's it is
0: what- a, a little yeah uh, peter moran we say you know was, was a back to the lander localist bef- before his time and so on but i do want to re- repeat uh, I, I tossed it out there's a throwaway line because my listeners sometimes like to actually buy the books that i suggest but eugene mccaraher's book does he still teach at Villanova? I think he does. Uh, the The Enchantments of Mammon. It's it's a Lifetime Achievement Award book. It's huge. Uh, it'll take you a while to read it. But he lays out such a beautiful case, I think, for uh, the deeply, deeply flawed nature of our modern economic system and the historical antecedents that led up to this. And the point he's making is that it didn't have to be this way.
1: Yeah, that's... I was, you know, I was just speaking to a bunch of uh, business people uh, at Regis over the weekend. A guy from Benedictine uh, College came out, uh, Dave Genins,
0: And Oh, uh, I have his, I have his book.
1: Oh, and uh, we 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 had an interesting exchange. Um, he wants to take back America, and he wants to have a kind of Catholic inflection to capitalism, and so on. I'm a little wary of this, but one of the things I, one of the points I made was that we have to beware of the ideology that says how things are is how they must be. That's right. And um, we tend to get trained by our social setting to think in certain ways to capture our imagination. I'm sure Gene talks about this. And um, uh, and so that we think things can't be. But I feel like the worker, Peter Moore, they, Dorothy, they all said, no, things don't need to be the way they are. They can be different. And we can be idealists. And if we're idealists now, that will become the reality down the road. Yeah. And uh,
0: yeah. I think
1: there's a lot to that.
2: Well, and, and, ben, and Ben, go ahead. I was going to say, I, I I think what what kind of piggybacks on that then is is also the criticism of capitalism that you get in, with Pope Francis and Laudato Si. That you know that the the lifestyle that people in the United States live is unsustainable for the for the whole planet. If the goal of cap, if if what if what the if what the crit- critics that you brought up in the beginning who would kind of criticize us say, well, the standard have gone up. That, that 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 is an unsustainable, like that that and and that the current Climate change crisis, or crisis of lack of, or whatever you want to call it, that's going on on the planet right now, kind of reflects this idea that there are limits to the amount of resources that we have on the planet, and so the the kind of the kind of endless consumption or drive to consumption that is also at the core of capitalism, right, is just something that I think is bringing now the whole planet to kind of a, 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 you know, what what the Pope is trying to point out a kind of breaking point. And, and so, you know, if, 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 if what we're yeah. supposed to be, you know, and, and I know Gustavo Gut, Gut, Gutierrez talks about that idea of, you know, calling something the developing world, what are they developing into? And if the goal of what they're developing into is to become little, you know. Middle-class, you know, uh, American consumers—that we there's just not enough on the planet. And so, so instead of saying we just need to keep consuming more, and maybe those those lost ways of life that 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 you and Mike are kind of talking about—that kind of get ravaged—that those are the things that that we need to start looking more at. That were those more sustainable practices where people maybe didn't have three flat screen TVs in in, in their house and two cars and in the driveway, but people were able to take care of their families and people were able people were fed and people weren't crowded into slums and cities but but instead lived in a more, you know, back to the land kind of way. Um,
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's amazing, isn't it? The smaller that our families became in terms of numbers of children, the larger our houses got. I mean, I was one of five children, grew up in the 60s in Lincoln, Nebraska, in a tiny little ranch house with three bedrooms, five kids, five kids one bathroom. My father nailed some blankets up on the rafters in the basement to make different rooms for the boys downstairs. And, and, and that's that's how, that's how we lived. And we didn't even know that we were deprived because we weren't deprived. So, yeah. And I, I think, too, to, to, to bring this, t- I tend to be dystopian about these things. And I'll explain why here in a second. Uh, the, talking about Laudato Si, which I think is the best of Pope Francis's writings. Uh, and that we need to change our consumer mentality. Think, for, ex- for example, that of states like New Jersey and California that have outlawed single source plastics. So that you can't have plastic straws. So the straws are paper. The straws are wrapped in plastic, which makes no sense. Okay. Lots of people have pointed this out recently. <laughs> they, they show on social media. Here's the straw I got at Starbucks, the, the paper straw, and it's wrapped in plastic. Likewise, uh, both in California and New Jersey have noticed an absolute explosion increase in the use of plastic. As soon as plastic grocery bags were outlawed, people started buying those re, you know, those reusable uh, bags you get at the grocery store. But guess what? They're made of plastic. And what has happened is that people were throwing those away. <laughs> and they're just buying new ones when they go to the store. And so you ended up with this massive, actually, this was an article I read just last week. New Jersey has ended up with an increase in plastics all over the place as a result of outline single-use plastics it's but but the point is the the root cause of this is a consumerist mentality
2: no there there, there's i I don't know if you guys saw there was this great op-ed in the new york times last last sunday on the fake meat industry and that that there was this push about three or four years ago that you that you could create real meat in a factory so it wasn't it wasn't veggie meat that tastes like meat it was taking a cell and billions of dollars went into the research and nothing has come of it but what the what what the author of the article was writing is at the heart of it was and he doesn't refer to pope francis but it's what he calls that technocratic paradigm that i don't have to stop my lifestyle i can still eat steak every night It's just technology will fix it. So now the steak isn't as bad for the planet as, as, you know, these huge feedlots out in your old state of, 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 of of Nebraska and all those things cause. So like, like the idea that I have to change my lifestyle and maybe not eat as much meat or not eat as many of these things that's off the table. I just look for, well, I'll have science fix it. So now we have meat that's just better, and it's just this big myth. And it was, and you know, and they were kind of saying, could that three billion dollars have been spent in some other way to address, you know, all the problems that they were hoping? Yes. But it just wasn't as sexy as no, 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 no. We're gonna let you know. And I, I I often think about this with uh, electric cars. Like no, no, everybody's electric car. You can keep driving all you want. We'll just make cars that aren't as that are a little less bad get as opposed to just drive less or bike more or walk more or do some but we don't want to. or, or
0: invent or invest in mass transit uh yeah. so that we we can actually have cities one of the things I love about New York City one of the things I loved about the time I lived in Rome is that th- there are cities in which you don't have to own a car where y- you can actually get around and live without a car uh and I think we need to design cities like like that anyway th- but I want to move this is all a preempt. I want to move on to the question that, that Mike started to, to ask, which is, assuming that there are these problems of social dislocations, the destruction of communities, blah, 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 capitalism, wh- how can we imagine it differently? And I, I said earlier, I tend to be just dystopian about these things. I just finished reading a book by a philosopher named Anton Barba uh, trained at the University of Chicago, I do believe. And the name of the book is A Web of Our Own Making. It's really good. And he tends to be dystopian as well. And his point is that you can liken modern globalist techno militarist capitalism to like this ever closing nexus, this ever tightening, tightening nexus. Uh, so that opting out of the system is becoming less and less and less possible for the average person and so his that's what a web of our own making that we've created this globalist economic nightmare that has its tentacles everywhere and into everything and so the imaginative capacity to think differently and he makes this point is is robbed of us because it just almost becomes it's, it's like being in a maximum security prison and you're in there, life without parole. And the very idea of escape is impossible. And, and so I, 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 I throw that out there as a preamble to, OK, Mike, go ahead and discuss what can what what can we do differently? How can we live differently?
1: Um, I get this question a lot. I raise it a lot when we I teach a course <clears throat> on Laudato C and the Ecology. And uh, at the end of the course, the uh, the problem that I raise is is the problem of hope. How do you hope? The more you learn about the ecological situation in which we live, the more depressing you get, and perhaps the less hopeful. Um, And the answer, the only answer I have, is to live a life of hope, and that's what enhances and deepens your hope. Um, How do you imagine things differently? give a story i when i was in andre house in phoenix low these 40 years ago we started <laughs> um uh, after a couple of years uh, we, you know we started a soup line 6 days a week 2 300 eventually 600 people a night five six nights a week uh and we met a lot of people on the soup line and one of the things that surprised us was how Young, most of the men, mostly men uh, on the line were um, and that they could work. Mm. So we started um, uh, talking with them about going to work and uh, we started identifying guys on the line who said they wanted to work and we started matching them with the, you know, the really unbelievably broad group of volunteers and donors we had. And um, uh, after a while we started thinking we should start a job service where people could get work who were on the line, meet people who were volunteering and get hired. And we started to do it little by little, one by one and then five by five. And my vision was that we could actually start a business that would be a temp service and uh you know back then we used to say well you hire a worker on a temp service ten dollars an hour you have to devote six dollars an hour to operating costs um uh you you have to pay people uh um you know a couple dollars uh um uh for their pay and, and then, um, you, uh, no it works like this. You get $10 a day or $10 an hour from a company to move furniture from one building to another, you pay the worker. The, the way a temp service will work is they'll pay the workers $6 an hour. They'll devote $2 an hour to, um, uh, operating course. And they take the other two for profit. Now, can you tweak that so that you take the uh two for profit and pay people 750 an hour something like that mm-hmm. and um it, and then you, you have in, you, you're paying people each week and maybe you start with 20 people could develop into 40 people who are working for these companies and then people hear about this and they're ready to hire they in Phoenix there was lots of uh you know uh, lawn cutting and all that And uh, eventually you could incentivize the pay in such a way that you could, people that kept their job for for a month, they'd get a raise and uh, get an apartment. And, you know, we would provide some of the uh, uh, provisions that you need to go to work and so on. And at length, we could have the workers run the company and, um, you know, have worker councils and so on. It would take time. It would take several years, but you could build this this company up in such a way that it would be different. This is what Peter Morin went meant when he said uh, we make the encyclicals click. This is what John Paul II sets forth in Centesimus Annus is this type of free market, this type of worker cooperation, this type of deobjectification of workers to give them their agency back. And, um, I'm convinced that with a little imagination, you can do this. When When I was in South Bend, uh, one thing that we found out with, with Ben and I found out with homeless folks in South Bend, they were great at getting um, picking up cans and other stuff that people set out in their alleys, you know, like wash machines and, um, uh, uh, dryers and hot water heaters and so on. And they knew where all this stuff was. And they knew that these things could be taken apart and you could get the aluminum and the copper and get some money out of it so we thought we i i I had this idea we should start a little business and um and we were going to call it miraculous metals Um, (laughs) (laughs) and and, you know and we had these guys go up uh, to notre dame and they would pick up cans after football games come down with these big bags you you know you get a big bag of cans that was worth 20 bucks at the time well if you get 40 bags like that that's that's real money
0: now you're talking serious money and point you know i mean i think we need to have a revolution a lay revolution in the church on the parish level to help us make parishes uh hubs of exactly this kind of activity um and 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 before I I turn it over to Ben, because I'm sure he's got something he wants to like, I think of my parish, which is an Anglican ordinary parish, but it's in the poorest neighborhood in Scranton, PA. We have we have a crisis pregnancy center that's been start started by a parishioner that's right across the street from the church now that we all help out with. Uh, we have a casket maker, Marion Caskets, Marcus Daly, my dear friend, and he makes these simple pine casks. It's a ministry. He's right across the street from the church. We have a doctor, Dr. Philip Huffman, who was a former emergency room doctor. Who's, he's just opened up his own practice and basically charges next to nothing uh, to anybody who wants his services as a doctor. And I think, for example, our good friend Bill Portier, his wife, Bonnie, she has a medical practice. It's very, very similar to that. Uh, she does wonderful work in that regard. These, you know, like George Bush the older, you know, a thousand points a light. Isn't that what he said? A thousand points a light. Now I'm combining Dana Carvey's impression of Bush with Bush, but you get the point that Bush was a Republican, but he wasn't wrong. Okay, ab- about that. Anyway, Ben, go ahead.
2: I-, I was gonna say just 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 to get back to, to to that, uh, when you were talking about that prison and the and and the and the and the philosophy you, you were reading. And I wonder if part of it is is that prison real or do we just lack the imagination? Do we just assume it's real? I I always find this line great that, you know, I remember reading a a review once of one of these zombie movies or kind of apocalyptic movies. And, and, and what the reviewer said was, it's easier for us in America to imagine the end of the world than it is to imagine the end of capitalism, right? It's a much easier to assume. Yeah will come and as opposed to saying, is there some other way that we could be living here? And 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 but I agree with you that I think the parishes that would really be, you know, and, and it's not for nothing that Peter thought that every Catholic parish should have a house of hospitality. That these are these sites, you know, and, and and I think it's it's something on the on the positive level, like you were just laying out Larry of things that can happen, you know, ministries, kind of w- w- whether it's jobs programs or healthcare. But also, I, I I think of, you know, friends of mine uh, who have kids, my kids' ages, who are just looking, you know, does a 10-year-old need a smartphone? And they just assume, I guess they do because everybody in their kid's class has yeah. a smartphone. And you want to say, well, a Catholic parish could be, should be the place where people can get together and support each other as almost like communities of resistance to this kind of capitalism. So so not only as sites. Psych- yeah. You can be doing these works of mercy, but also as places just, and I think there's a broad, this could be one of those great things that I think could really, you know, we're so divided in in, in the church along ideological lines, but I think my friends more on the right and my friends more on the left both say their kids want stuff right. all the time, and they don't like shopping on Amazon, but they don't know what else to do. You know, they don't like having all this technology, but they don't know what else to do, and I think like, these Yeah. Kids, Places where we could do this kind of stuff, and we could support one another, and then that that kind of opens up to the next line of well, then what what else could we start doing? And we could start doing this, and suddenly you find, and then that moves to other people. They say, well, this parish is doing this. Why can't we do that too? And I think that's that kind of you know opening the opening the possibilities. But I think right now we just live in this idea that there's well, there's no other option. This is all I can do. I have to shop on Amazon. I have to buy my kids this stuff. We have to have. Yeah. six yeah. in the house. There's no other. There's no other option. Or two <laughs> cars or three cars or four
1: cars or the birthday party industry for small kids. It drives me crazy or, or not
2: doing something on a Sunday, having a Sabbath.
0: Well, how about this? How about we get at least start by getting Catholic parishes not to have CYO sports on Sunday morning? How about that? I went through that as a parent. How about this? Uh, 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 not spending $65,000 on your wedding. How about that? Uh, that's, that's been a vendetta of mine ever since my wedding. <laughs> and you know, uh, that the money we spent on the wedding and my wife will kill me.
1: And Bergen used to say it, it. it is, um, he came down to Andre house, gave a retreat to us. Very memorable. Uh, and one of the things he said in talking about Acts 5 with Ananias and Sapphira was um matrimony, marriage is is the most degraded of the sacraments. And uh I, I think that's true in the way that it's just
2: um become yeah.
0: I agree. But, but, uh but go ahead, Ben.
2: I, to say, I, 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 I just think people all like I hear so many people who kind of you know roll their eyes and say, Yeah, I don't but no one then they kind of fall with I just don't know what else there is to do. Like and so I think it's that lack of imagination that again to think of the, the, the Catholic worker notion of building a society where it's easy. I think I think we can do these things and I think we can follow what Dorothy and, and, and Peter yeah. had in offering alternatives.
0: I think it was uh I know it was. It was David, David Schindler, David L. Schindler, the elder, who's just uh, the late great. Who said that the worst thing of, of all about modernity is that it robs us of the ability to imagine anything different? Like you were talking about earlier, Michael. Uh, you know, when we have to be able to imagine that it could be different; it didn't have to be this way. Uh, let's move on, though. Uh, that okay? There are all these ways that we can we can take concrete action to ameliorate. I mean, I like what you said, Mike, the way to be hopeful is to actually just live hopefully. All right. Uh, and, and you know, you will, you will become what it is that you do. And if you live hopefully, then then hopefully hope will develop out of that hope anyway. Uh, but that then to me, though, it raises an, another issue about the military industrial complex. All right. We've been talking about capitalism. One, I, I made a post on Twitter X, whatever it is, the other day. It was on Facebook as well, in which I said, one of the things that I've learned in my 65 years uh, is that there's one thing I know about the American government, and, and that is that it lies. And it lies about its lies. And it's lied so much that you can't trust it uh, with regard to anything. And, and, and so... It would seem to me that there's always a prima facie case to be made, that no war could possibly be just that this nation wages, but you can ne- because you can never trust whether or not this government is telling the truth about the reasons for going to war. And the, the, what provoked that for me was that some guy who worked in American intelligence leaked something about how the Russians are putting nuclear bombs in space or something or other. And this was last week. And that created this massive hysteria. And so well, I thought, well, how do we know that's true? And how do we know we don't have nuclear bombs in space? We don't know that any of that is true. So my, my point, it's part of my dystopian curmudgeonly nature. My, 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 my point is that this isn't just a question of economics. The system that we live within is an amalgamation of economics and power, not just the power of wealth, but actually imperial power, the extension of our wealth through the means of force and that america is constantly on a war footing and has been since world war ii so how do we how so before we get on to, to the end point here which is talking about the state of the catholic worker movement which may have to wait till a future thing how do we interested who are interested in in the catholic worker vision and dorothy's vision about issues of war and peace and I know Martha Hennessy and, and some of the Plowshare seven who went down, you know, and, and did the vigilante action at the nuclear site. And I believe it was North Carolina or maybe it was Virginia. I can't remember now. Anyway, uh, what do we do? What do we do to combat that part of our economic system, this militarist part? Well, Michael, you I'll be go, sure. Ben.
2: Well, to say, just, 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 just real quick first, give up hope that we can somehow transform it or take control of that. I think there's been this long, and we talked about this last time with John Courtney Murray, this long kind of running Catholic narrative that Catholics can somehow save all of this, or Catholics can redeem all of this. And I think, Larry, that very powerful uh, uh, statement you just kind of made about this is almost inherent to the American project. And so maybe the first thing we should do is sort of give up this sort of naivete that, oh, no, if we just get enough Catholics in the military, or if we just get enough Catholic CEOs of of Pratt and Whitney and Lockheed Martin, then everything will be better because they'll listen to what Pope, you know, let's just stop that charade and say we really have to kind of treat this as an unchristian, if not anti-christian, you that we live in and move from this and make that our starting point I think as dorothy
0: is- said yeah there are some professions simply that a catholic should not be able to be engaged in but anyway we, michael we, go ahead
1: we used to talk um about this a lot at notre dame ben and i were both at notre dame in the early 2000s and um uh people would people would say rotsie students who are so often the best students that you have in oh time. yeah you know the the department of defense knows how to use goodness to uh, evil ends but um uh they these were great students and they would argue that we, no, we're going to christianize the military um but then other students would counter uh well no you're just going to militarize christianity and i think that we see this now this kind of emergent christian nationalism uh uh, almost unapologetically now, although my own view is that this has been the norm for, say, all of Dorothy's life and prior to that, so World War One. If there was a turning point, I would I would point to that. Um, another thing I I would want to say is when you look at this gigantic system, it it can get depressing. One thing you can do, and I feel like we should do, as as a church, if we're going to criticize war, if we're going to decry nuclear weapons, we have to help people in the military
2: who feel so moved to get out, to leave. Or, or, I say, or, or more broadly, the whole military-industrial complex. You're yeah. building aircraft carriers and you're building... Uh,
0: yeah, I think this is so true. I mean, I told you I did my master's thesis at Mount St. Mary's under Jermaine Griset. And the, the the gist of it was that the American nuclear deterrent is immoral, gravely so, and that no Catholic can participate in it. Uh, and it's funny. It's back in the day before computers. This is the 1980s. So I wrote the the the, the thesis out longhand on a, on a legal pad. And I, I didn't have a working typewriter at the time. It's a long story. So I I found this guy, and people people used to do this. They used to, you know, you'd pay them to type up your stuff. Yes, yes. typists, right? So I gave him this 125-page, you know, thesis, and he typed it. Well, it turns out the guy was in the Nebraska National Guard, and he gave it to his sergeant because he thought it was so interesting when, it, when, they, when they got it done. And both of them ended up leaving the Nebraska National Guard because they were both Catholics, and they were so yeah. moved by, by the argument. In, and the, what, the, the, what the typist said to me was nobody had ever presented that argument to them. That was yeah. the first time they had ever heard the argument. All they had ever heard from anybody in the church was, you're fine you're go ahead
2: no and, and i you know i i have a friend who works at pratt whitney and he was telling me that when when the news of what was going on uh in yemen and sort of this the saudi arabian bombing of yemen and that pratt and whitney was involved in making some of that aircraft that people on the military side of pratt whitney just said yeah. i can't do this anymore I, I i can't yeah continue to and i think so i think this is that's a, this is much broader. I mean, I think we oftentimes focus on soldiers, but I think as you guys both point out, this is a much broader, and I think there's there's the bishop in in Amarillo, Texas, right, who very kind of bravely came out and said, you know, Catholics should not be working in in factories that make nuclear weapons. And, and I, think, yeah. I think more of that kind of, because I think people are realizing it on their own, but I think if we really could give people the feel like you were doing with your sweetest give people the theological justification because oftentimes what they're met with is what are you talking about? it's not a problem you're all, all all you're doing is building the airplane you're not dropping the bombs on on the yemeni refugees so don't worry about it yeah them. but they're yeah,
0: no, rem- yeah it's remote yeah remote cooperation yeah i can't wait to read the com box underneath this youtube video when it comes out or the emails i'm going to get about because that's the argument that people do make is the one michael mentioned earlier that if you get all the Catholics out of the nuclear missile silos, mm-hmm. then what you certainly hope for is that there will still be people of conscience in those silos who won't, won't, who will not turn the key. I had one guy, I, I think it was a comment in the last, at the last one uh, said that, and it's true, there was a famous incident in the Soviet union where there was some kind of a computer glitch and the Soviets were convinced that the United States was attacking them. And there was, we, one man stood up to it and said, this might be a mistake. And let's not incinerate half the planet on a mistake. And he turned out to be right. And so the point would be, okay, don't we need Catholics to be down in those silos? But I I, I don't think that's a cogent argument, because I think more often than not, what happens is the Catholic gets co-opted by, by the mentality of the silo, then the other way around. Anyway, yeah. Michael.
2: And into being part of a system that can bring the whole planet to the brink of extinction in yeah. power. I think that's also a problem.
1: Well, you know, um Archbishop Wester of Santa Fe has brought these issues to the fore a couple of years ago. It's um uh you know, he he's in New Mexico, um, site of Los Alamos Laboratories, which still operates and um Almogordo, which is where the first nuclear weapon was ever detonated in 1945, before the bombs were dropped. Oppenheimer, the movie, has really drawn a lot of interest to this again. And and he's making that argument. And it really needs to be made. You know, I think of uh, Bishop McElroy. He has decried nuclear weapons along, you know, the lines of Pope Francis, um, in, uh, recent statements over the last seven or eight years. Um, but I also think Bishop McElroy needs to attend to the people in his diocese who work at the Naval Shipyard.
0: Yeah. In San Diego. Uh,
1: and, um, and up in, uh, Camp Pendleton where all the Marines are. And, uh, that really we need to, um, Again, I I feel like be present for those in the military who may have conscience qualms about this. Uh, And that that, you know, Ben and I were both involved in the Catholic Peace Fellowship, and one of our little slogans was, we want to stop war one person at a time, one by one by one, you know, this personalist approach that Dorothy, I think, wanted to, and Ben's been doing work on Gordon Zahn, there's a great figure in the 20th century who yeah. really wanted to raise these questions. I think the irony, Larry, you'll like this, the irony is that we have now um, uh, many in the church who are calling for a new paradigm in moral theology, whereas the older more traditional paradigm set forth in veritas splendor provides the basis for the pastoral work that needs to be done so that people can feel better about not cooperating with evil and um uh yeah. in all these ways you know whether it be defense industries or direct military service and so on um anyway it's uh yeah again- you, you have to, you have to just do the work little by little. It's the only way to be hopeful. When I, Martha, uh, go that, ahead. When Martha and, and those folks go get arrested in the Kings Bay, you know, I think it's great. That's one way of doing this. It but is. there's many other ways that we can work for peace too. And we all let ten thousand flowers bloom when it comes to this.
0: I agree, Ben. I'll let you. Uh get a word in edgewise here eventually, Uh, but I do want to, along those lines, uh, to bring up our friend Bill Portier again. I remember years and years ago at some conference, I do not, I went to so many, we all do, they all run together, Uh, but Bill presented a paper. In that paper, he floated the idea that the church needs to develop a penance service of healing and reparation. In other words, what we're what we're talking about here isn't to judge Catholic soldiers. We're not here to heap coals of blame and hostility upon, but to to use a much overused term, to accompany, to accompany, to help them get out of the military in whatever way we can, if that if they have a conscience qualm about it. But also for those who remain in the military, uh, I I have a very very dear friend. I won't say who. His son joined the Coast Guard. And in the Coast Guard, in this, I know the, the son very, very, very well. Salt of the Earth kid. Great, great young man. Catholic. Joined the Coast Guard. Got stationed down in the Caribbean, in the Gulf Coast. And essentially on a Coast Guard boat that was interdicting uh, drug runners. Well, they figured out that my friend's son was a pretty good sharpshooter. He was very good in sniper school. So they gave him the job of sniping and shooting uh, the, the drug runners. If they, you know, the, the gunboats coming towards the Coast Guard ship and they've got, you know, guns shooting at the ship. This young kid's job, my friend's son, was to take him out. And he did. Now he suffers from enormous problems, right? Uh, because he believes that what he did was just, He believes that what he did was self-defense. These were evil, bad men bringing drugs into our country, and they were attacking his ship. Okay, fine. So there was no question in his mind he did something immoral, but he killed people. He killed people, and that left a mark on his soul. And anybody that's ever been in war, and I've never been in war, but I know people who have to say that leaves a mark on your soul. And it seems to me that Bill Portier was entirely correct in that paper that he presented, that we need some kind of a liturgical service, a penance service, a healing service of some kind. And I remember my late, great, dear departed Jesuit friend, Father Edward Oakes, who was my dissertation director, being livid with Bill Portier over that paper, livid. He thought it was the stupidest thing that he had ever heard, precisely because if you're killing people in a just war, then you should have no guilt over it. And I thought, Ed, 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 he
2: doesn't he didn't know
1: what war is like because war in inflicts people with what people in this area call moral injury and and they undertake what they call soul repair and that's that's just a reality um of returning yeah so uh, re- coming home again it takes a lifetime coming home from war
2: takes a lifetime. And it isn't even I I don't even think it's I mean, there there are stories now about speaking of the Coast Guard among about Coast Guard boats that are pulling out Haitian refugees out of the ocean.
0: He's done that too.
2: company children. And they're told, just bring them back to Port-au-Prince. And there are these stories of these Coast Guard. They're not shooting anybody. They're not killing anybody. But they're fishing five and six year old orphans out of dinghies in the boats and then just dropping them off on a harbor and the kids are crying and these coast guard, you know, shipmen or whatever they're called cadets are, are, you know, are coming back again with this sense of moral injury and are, and, and because not because they even killed anybody, but because they're wondering, I have a five-year-old daughter at home and I just took this five-year-old girl. And did I leave her with, you know, kidnap I mean, like, and, and, and so all of this, you know, trying to, trying to work for this, what you're kind of calling this military-industrial complex, I think it it spans even beyond the guy with the gun, right? It goes yeah. to this whole, and that's what you 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 can see, like the person who makes the guns, or the person who who sells the guns, or the person who you know all of those people begin to get pulled into this system. And I think my friend, you know, at at Pratt Whitney was pointing out that even on the engineering level, there are people who are starting to say, "What are we doing this for?" <laughs> And should we be doing this? And people are saying, "Well, of course, you're not in charge of what they use the weapons for. You're just building the weapons, you know, in some hope, I guess, that they get used." And you know, but, um, but, but what, 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 one of the points too, I was thinking as you guys were talking is, you know, so as Mike mentioned, I'm doing work with Gordon Zahn, who's famously his kind of most famous achievement was kind of di- this, this discovering Franz Jagerstetter, the story of this of this German or this Austrian Catholic who's executed by, by the Nazis after he gets drafted and, and refuses to fight in, the, in, in Hitler's army, despite the fact that every priest and bishop and Catholic cleric he went to for advice said, just go do it. You're not in charge of deciding if the war is just or not. You have yeah. to think about yourself and, 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 and do your duty. But, but one of the things that, that Zahn often talked about is that in Catholic moral theology, we have this thing called the presumption of justice that we give to the nation state, that, that we that we presume that in times of war, there's a presumption given to the nation that the war is just. And what Zahn said is, and this kind of goes back, Larry, to what you were kind of talking about and that seeing yeah. America in this more imperialistic way, that maybe what we need to start, maybe the starting point should be a presumption of injustice. And that yeah. the case has to be made that this is something that a Catholic should participate in, whether it's whether it's in building the weapons, whether it's in working, you know, serving in the military, as, as opposed to the starting point being a, a, an assumption of justice or or a or a or, or a presumption of justice. And, and I think about that Zahn line a lot to have a presu- the starting point, like like the starting point that Jaegerstetter had was a was a presumption of injustice, that Hitler and the Nazis were an unjust regime and you had to argue to him to prove that they weren't, and nobody could do that for him, and so then he said, well, I can't participate in this. It would be evil, uh, but I think I think Catholic theology and Catholic theologians can help out here and bishops by maybe giving people more of that critical presumption of injustice, and let's start there and have, have the nation make the case for why we should be participating in these things. Um, I think that would be another place that we can maybe point to.
0: Excellent. Excellent. Uh, I, I think that's very well said. And, uh, all these, all these are great, are great, uh, suggestions and ideas. I, I just, um, you know, and I want to leave this with the viewers. We're probably going to wrap this up now. Uh, that we I always get emails saying okay with regard to capitalism. Well, what system would you recommend? And or blah, blah, what political party would you vote for then, Mister Smarty Pants? Or, oh, uh, you know, or as George Weigel said to me in Rome last October when I said that nuclear weapons the, our our nuclear deterrent was immoral, and George said, well, you know, it, by your logic we'd all be speaking Russian right now. First off, that's not true. I don't believe that that's true anyway. And, and second off, I said back to George and I love George. He's a great guy. He's a friend. Uh, I said, George, well, that makes you a utilitarian. And, and yeah. you know, and it, it just, it just, the, the subject changed and somebody interjected some other comment, I think, to diffuse the situation. Uh, uh, but I, I don't, I, we have to get rid of this fundamentally utilitarian calculus that we don't we don't bring that to bear in the sexual sphere, right? <laughs> it's all gravely immoral. There's no utilitarian calculus. There might be subjective mitigation, but there's no utilitarian calculus of means and ends. In- but when it comes to the military-industrial complex, there sure as heck are. And so, I—that's you know—I'm uh, not a huge fan of Cardinal McElroy for a lot of reasons, but he is absolutely right about the asymmetry uh, in our moral theology. <laughs>
1: Yes. And you know, um, for your readers <laughs> or your listeners, Larry, I'm going to mention an article that I know that you know, even though we've never talked about it. It's called The Morality of Obliteration Bombing by John C. Ford. It came That's out right. in the summer of 1944. It's about 80 pages long. You can get it free on theological studies. And um it's a long article but boy i'll tell you it's a classic because it makes the strong catholic case that yes. you just can't directly attack the innocent in war um and uh, he does it from just war grounds um, oh yeah
0: brise leaned heavily on that ford article
1: it's it's very powerful and so these issues and this is pre-nuclear weapons uh yeah and, th- and so these issues have been here a long time, and um, we really need to kind of recover this kind of discourse, which I think is a way, a way to help us through these complicated issues. And,
0: yeah. I mean, the firebombing of Dresden, a lot of Americans are unaware that uh, the American napalm or the equivalent of then of napalm bombing of Tokyo killed more people. Uh, I believe this is true, uh, but I believe that it killed more people than the nuclear, the atomic bombs we dropped did, because so many homes in uh, Tokyo are utterly flammable, made of bamboo and paper and things like this. Uh, and, and we did that deliberately. And that's the kind of thing that Ford was talking about in that article. You know, the height of World War II. He's saying, OK, you, as Catholics, we, we just can't obliterate whole cities like this. We're not allowed. Then, of course, there's the argument: well, it's total war, and there's no such thing as a distinction between combatants and non-combatants anymore because everybody in that society is implicated via their economic system in the war machine. and yeah. you're shaking. You're go ahead.
2: Oh, that's that. That that's I I just finished a book by um Jay Lifton, Jay Lofton. I forgot what his name was. It, it, it came out. Robert J. Yeah. Called, called the Myth of 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 Hiroshima. That there's this. That, that and he kind of goes back and tracks the, the the documents to how how we talked about the dropping of the bombs on on hiroshima and 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 nagasaki and, and where these arguments of no no it would have taken it would have saved two million lives and first it was a million lives and before that it was 800,000 lives and then and then know that you know there there this was a this was a people that just it, it was a total war and there was no other way around it and, and he kind of pulls apart all of those myths that you know as we're celebrating the, the anniversaries of, of the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, you know, even George Weigel brought up the same arguments that have been kind of, you know, that came much later after the bombing for justifying this. And I, and I think that's all, that's all worth, worth remembering. And then, and then reading what people at the time were saying that this was not, you know, that, that once we start, once we start losing this, this distinction between combatants and non-combatants, and once we start making this argument that it's just total war, that then we've kind of lost any sense of um, that war can be just. Uh, once we kind of lost that, you know, and, and that's and right. Elizabeth Anscombe makes that, and Griset and Ford, and I think there's a there's a long line uh, going back within within Catholic the, the, theology, you know, who, who are not pacifists, by the way. Uh, John Ford right. was a pacifist and Spelman was not a pacifist. I don't know if, if Grise was a pacifist.
0: No, he was not. He believed in the, He justified, I mean, he justified his position based on just war principles, just as as Ford had done but, in, what, in 1944. Do mean, and just as Mike Baxter was mentioning in our last episode, he said, in, I believe you said, Mike, that uh, you said you increasingly rely on the just war theory in order to show why most wars are, in fact, immoral.
1: You know, um, uh, Ford at one point in his great article says, um, "If this is if this is the nature of uh, of modern warfare, then so so much the worse for modern warfare." Um, but we we have to simply resist the barbarism of it. Um, I I'm really uh, uh, at a loss as to why my my good friend Bill Miss Campbell. Doesn't see the utilitarian character of this. He wrote the book, The Most Controversial Decision, uh defending yeah. President Truman's decision to drop the bomb. Um, but uh you know, I, I don't know where we're gonna wrap up, but it's important uh to uh um uh to mention that um Dorothy Day at the Eucharistic Congress of 19. 19- 76 decried the use of atomic weapons on um hiroshima and nagasaki because there was a celebration at the eucharistic congress of the military it being uh the bicentennial year and so on yeah and it was on august 6th (laughs) oh geez and so you know this year of eucharistic revival we need to bring forth the voice of Dorothy Day, servant of God, um, and her message uh, from years ago to us today: that um, we we need to repent of um, of these deeds and uh, learn uh, and learn how to see. This is what repentance is all about: see things differently.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Again, did you you went to your bookcase
2: you're, you're about to show us a book there was this Hiroshima in America you know by uh yeah Robert J Lifton and, and Greg Mitchell but 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 I, I think both make the case to, to, to get to what Mike was just saying along by the way I also just finished Gary will's great book bomb power and both of these books really really go a long way in tracing the history of where we are today and and again Larry you're you're kind of very impassioned description of the military industrial machine and how he they really trace this back to to the dropping of the bombs on hiroshima and, and nagasaki and what that's done to our country not, not just to to our government yeah. with i mean will's point that it, it creates the national security state and secrets and, and the kind of imperial presidency yeah. on both the whether whether it's a democrat or or or, or a republican but one of the things that Lifton and Mitchell bring up is it's just, you know, because we like to think of ourselves as the good guys in war. And here was a case where it was very clearly this bomb did not have to be dropped. Right. And, and yeah. they have a lot of historical evidence that the bomb did not have to be dropped. And yet they were dropped. And what that's done to how Americans have had to kind of explain that to ourselves and that that's really shaped a generation or two generation now of Americans to come to accept that we, that our government and the military does things and it's somehow still good. And we're somehow still the good guys. Um, and I think that's, that's a kind of myth that certainly Dorothy and, um, and a lot of the Catholic worker want to kind of pull, pull the pin out of. So,
0: um, well, there is, there is hope, uh, because I did read the other day that, uh, the, the various branches of the United States military are having a hard time filling, filling their ranks these days. Uh, and I don't know why that is, uh, but I, am kind of glad to hear that people are going to, th- Oh, I'm going to, I, man, the emails I'm going to get now. Oh my God. You commie, blah, 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 you communist Marxist, blah, blah, blah. At least you're getting, views,
2: right? least you're getting viewers. <laughs> oh yeah.
0: Yeah. But you know, uh, they just, it's, it's, there's a certain, I'm just going to be blunt about this and we do need to wrap up but you know most of my listeners viewers are on the conservative side of the theological spectrum as am i actually uh you know if you look at my trinitarian theology my christology my ecclesiology it's all pretty it's ray source mon it's guardini bouillet balthazar rodzinger these guys and that marks me as i guess what you would call in some circles, a conservative theologian. And I'm critical of progress, many aspects of progressive Catholic theology, which I think just feeds the Leviathan of the state and so on and so forth. Uh, nevertheless, nevertheless, I do have these Catholic worker views about war and peace. And whenever I do write about them or speak of them, I always get, uh, the, re- the reactions are very interesting from conservative catholics who uh who it seems to me still have this when it comes to issues of national defense and national security have a utilitarian mindset i'm just going to leave it at that Larry, and they act go ahead
1: you got to get rid of these categories conservative and liberal or progressive i mean that that's part of the problem um, yeah in our in our contemporary Well what
0: taxonomy would you replace it with?
1: Traditional and radical. Traditionally Catholic and radical when it comes to economics and politics. Um and that may not uh help you with your listeners, but it but it is uh it is helpful to escape uh these crushing polarities of uh left and right, liberal and conservative. Oh.
0: Yeah, sister, Donald Corcoran, a Benedictine nun that I who knew Dorothy Day, who lived with her for a year uh, in Manhattan uh, when she was a young nun. When Sister Donald was a young nun, she said to me, you know, because uh, we were having this exact same conversation. It's like, I don't know what other shorthand to use conservative, progressive, liberal, blah, 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 neocon. She goes, what you are, Larry, what you are is a radical, radical tradition. That's what you believe in. Radical tradition. Not a tra- not a radical traditionalist, uh, but a traditional radical or a radical traditionalist or something along those lines. Uh not a radical tradition, a radical tradition. I can't, I I'm I'm mangling what she said, but it's the it's what you just said, Michael. It's what you just said.
2: Well, and 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 I and I, I think this also takes us back to last time we 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 talked in about. Murray and kind of the view of America that I think is shared by people across this political spectrum that we're limited by. I was, speaking of kind of a lack of imagination, I, I I I think as Americans we're sort of given two options and 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 that's kind of it. And and I think, um, but I think one of the things that was helpful in what we're talking about with with Murray is to kind of see that that both of them really are just two sides of the same coin and that's this view that america is somehow the exceptional place and catholics have an obligation um to work for it and 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 i think what what the radical critique that we're talking here kind of um isn't buying into that and never has bought into that and and so
0: what's Oh, oh, this is a great point, and was one of the topics you sent, Mike. Oh, God! Can we just go another five minutes here? Look, the deal is this.
1: Uh, uh, I was just about to chat you saying we need to get out, but that's okay.
0: (laughs) No, just a question of uh, because I do think what afflicts so many Catholics in the United States is a sense of American exceptionalism. But what's the difference between American exceptionalism, patriotism, nationalism, and all those? Maybe we'll save that for our, our next episode
2: that's
1: a lot to unpack. Yeah, I mean, patriotism is love of country, but why do we say love of nation-state? I always used to say when I was in yeah. South, I'm patriotic to Michiana.
0: Well, yeah, <laughs> I'm patriotic. We... I, I, when people, you know, ask me, where are you from? I don't say, I say, I'm, I'm from Nebraska. Uh, I've lived in Pennsylvania for 30 years, and when people ask me where I'm from, I say, oh, I'm, I'm a Nebraskan. I'm from Nebraska. I I loathe the notion that I'm a Pennsylvania <laughs> and I reject it utterly. But so it does point out, yeah, that uh, I think there's a localist dimension to patriotism in, as the virtue that it is uh, that that nationalism doesn't have. But this will be safe for our we're going to get the band back together one more time. We'll discuss that and we'll discuss uh, the, the state of the Catholic worker movement. Anyway, I have taxed your patience long enough, gentlemen, Thank you for spending an hour and a half with me here. A thanks, very man. oh great conversation. I loved every second of it. I hope the viewers and listeners did too. Uh, thanks, guys.
1: Okay. Oh, now
0: I just need to figure out how to stop recording. Stop recording.